Well, once again, happy Sabbath. Good to have you all here. Jesus welcomes you, and we welcome you to the Battle Creek Tabernacle. If you're a visitor, we hope you will make this your home. And for our members, we're so grateful that you are here. Before we get into our message today, I do have a couple of announcements. One is uh, regarding John Landis. John was on staff with us here at the Battle Creek Tabernacle. Um, He will no longer be. As of August 1, he is full-time at Battle Creek Academy. So that's the bad news, I guess. But the good news is he'll still be here and I'm sure be an integral part of our church. And we look forward to God using him mightily there with our young people at the academy. The second announcement is a little more uh, with a sad heart that we make. Uh, My wife and I have accepted a call to Sacramento, California, to Sacramento Central, Doug Batchelor's old church. And so we will be moving on in January. Um, I will be moving on. My wife may be here until June because uh, we're not going to move our father-in-law in in the middle of the winter. But uh, that is the news. And, you know, you guys have been wonderful. You know, we've, we've, you know, worked with you at school. We've seen many of you baptized. Um, You know, we've laughed together. We've cried together. A lot of funerals, right? Too many funerals. Um, A sprinkled few weddings in there and... um, You people are really wonderful, and we're going to miss you very much. We also believe the best days are ahead for Battle Creek Church here and the Academy, and so we're just, um, again, looking forward to what God is going to do here among you. A little bit of counsel as I make this announcement. Don't look to people. They will often or almost always disappoint you. Become a studier for yourself. Let the Holy Spirit guide you into all truth. Remember also that the ministry and the movement of the men that God has especially called and ordained to his service is not in the hands of any man, but it's in the hands of Almighty God. 1 Peter 3 says this, All of you be of one mind and have compassion on one another and love one another as family. Be pitiful and courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but instead by blessing, knowing that for this you have been called and through this you will inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil. We saw that word a couple weeks ago means be spooked by evil and do good and run hard after peace and seek it. May that be your desire as you go forward. And it's a little bit anticlimactic because you still have to see me all the way until January. So anyway, that's what we have. And we'd be glad to talk to you further about uh, the particulars. But again, Jesus welcomes you. We welcome you. A couple of health tips before we go on for your upper respiratory. As we still have COVID in our midst, there's a couple things that I can suggest that I do, and you're welcome to do them yourself if you like. That is 
povidone iodine 10% solution. You can get it in any of your local drugstores. And then on the other side is a nasal rinse bottle. So you take one teaspoon of this iodine solution, put it in your rinse bottle, put clean water in there with it, fill it up to the little line, shake it up, and then you squirt that in your nose. <clears throat> you can also put it in your mouth, swish and spit. Don't swallow it. And also don't do this in any normal setting. Do it in the shower because this stuff does tend to stain. I know two doctors that do this on a regular basis. One has never gotten COVID. Now, there's so many different variables. Who knows if this was what did it? But um, there are quite a few people I know now that are using this, and it's very cheap. That bottle will last you forever, I mean, unless you're using it on other cuts or bruises or whatever. Here's another thing. It's a nasal spray called citricidal. This is grapefruit seed extract. The seeds of grapefruits have been shown to be, um, well, seeds in general are very nutritious um, and have many uh, compounds that are good for you. But this is from the grapefruit seeds. The main compounds in grapefruit seeds thought to be responsible for its ability to kill infectious agents are chemical compounds polyphenols, known as limonoids, and marangenin. These intensely powerful compounds act as antimicrobials, antioxidants, and antifungals. So that's just a little thing you get, and you just spray it up your nose, and uh, off you go. So many people think if it's an um, upper respiratory illness that's coming to you, you should treat it or prevent it in the upper respiratory. Kind of makes sense. So there's a couple things for you, and I hope they'll be a blessing. Well, I take you now to a story of just an ordinary day and an ordinary place. It was a warm, sunny, humid Tuesday, June 15 in 2012. Pastor Jeff and his wife, Sandy, were serving in the mountain city of Bahamansa, Brazil. Just an ordinary day, ordinary place, but it was a day when the extraordinary would happen. You see, the church had canvassed a certain part of town and they'd given this lead to Pastor Jeff and said, please go follow this up. This church member was going to go with him and so the pastor was more than happy to do that. It's as if the church member insisted that he must go and visit a certain family. And so they went. And it was a granddaughter and her grandmother. And the granddaughter was super tuned in to his presentation of the gospel. She was just riveted. The grandmother, not so much. She was listening, but he wasn't exactly sure how she was tracking. Well, as he continued his gospel presentation, they both decided that they wanted to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So that was a big blessing. Well, it was now 10 minutes to 5, and they had to get back to the church. Of course, Jeff, being a time-conscious American, he wanted to be on time back at the church, but the church member said, no, no, we must go and visit one other lady. This other lady was the daughter or the mother, however you want to say it. So now we have three generations, right? You had the grandmother, the granddaughter, and now the one in between was the visit that he went to. He spent about an hour there. And she too was just riveted by the presentations. She too accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior. 
These three ladies, three generations of lives were changed that day. An ordinary day, an ordinary place, but the story gets better. These ladies were not just nominal Christians or atheists or unbelievers. They were Satan worshipers. And not just that, they were leaders in the Macumba religion brought to Brazil from Africa. Well, if we are open to the Holy Spirit's leading, God will take an ordinary day and an ordinary place and do something extraordinary in our lives also. Let's pray. Father God, now as we open your holy word, we ask your spirit to especially come, anoint our hearts and minds to listen. Please, Lord, go deep into our hearts with your word today. Pierce our hearts, Lord. Strengthen and encourage your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So last week I told you we were going to look at one of the most important messages in inspiration. Uh, if you remember, just during the announcements, it was actually fairly quick. And someone shared this with me, so I wanted to share it with you. This is from a book called Gospel Workers from one of my favorite authors, and it says this, the eternal welfare of sinners regulated the conduct of Jesus. Amen? That's what he was all about. He went about doing good. Benevolence was the life of his soul. Now, he not only did good to all who came to him, soliciting his mercy, but he solicited or preservingly sought them out. So we have a seeking Savior today. Amen? He doesn't just wait for us to come to him. If we come, that's great, but he's seeking after those that he loves, which is the world. Now, how does he seek after? He uses you. He uses me to seek after those in this world. He was never elated with applause or dejected by censure or disappointment. Wouldn't you love that? Well, you can have it as you have Christ in you. And when he met with the greatest opposition and the most cruel treatment, he was of good courage. And now here it is. The most important discourse that inspiration has given us. I would have never thought, would you? John 4. Christ preached to only one listener as he sat upon the well to rest, for he was weary. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. He saw an opportunity to reach her mind, and not just her mind, but through her to reach the minds of the Samaritans, a people who were in great darkness and error. Although weary, he presented the truths of his spiritual kingdom, which charmed the heathen woman and filled her with admiration for Christ. This woman's testimony converted many to a belief in Christ. You've read the story. Through her report, many came to hear for themselves and believed because of his own word. 
Piercing the Darkness Within is the name of our sermon. Turn with me to John chapter 4. The woman at the well, you know the story. But hopefully we can get some new insights as we dig down today on this most important message. Here's sort of an outline of this sermon and of this, not the whole chapter, but through verse 26. Christ first shows trust. Give me a drink. That was showing trust. We'll get to that. Then he offers the free gift. Remember that at the foundation of every heathen religion is legalism. They must do, they must do, they must do. So to offer a gift was obviously surprising to her. And then in 16 through 19, it seems like he turns a corner. Go get your husband. Where did that come from? (laughs) As you look at the narrative, how did he get there? Well, I hope we'll get some clues as we go along. And then in verse 20 through 26, Christ breaks down social barriers. It doesn't matter which mountain you're worshiping at. I want people that worship me in spirit and in truth, Christ says. And he again shows faith, and he presents a father that is seeking after the lost. For the father seeks such to worship him. There's your outline. Let's get right to it. And I've got the King James rendering this morning. John chapter 4. I better turn there. John chapter 4. All right. Verse 1 and onward says this, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize, just his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And then verse 4, this is crucial. And this is how the, the story about there in Brazil, Jeff in Brazil ties in. And he must need go through where? Are you following me? Through Samaria, right? Now, if the King James said he must not go through Samaria, that would almost make more sense because the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. It was, however, the most direct route, but there were two other routes that he couldn't take, that he could have taken. Why is it that he must go that route? Well, because he knew that there was a divine appointment waiting for him there, a lady that was thirsty, a lady whose heart was hardened by disappointment and trial. And I'm going to give you a different twist on her. I don't know that she was a prostitute. I'm going to... to, show you a little different view of her possibly and uh, take it home, study your words, see what you find. But here he must need go. Have you ever had a situation where you had to do something, right? And then you found out, oh yeah, that was a divine appointment. Now I know why God took me there. Absolutely. I remember going to uh, Phil's house here, Phil and Martha. I was on my way home. I was on my way home. It was dark and the Lord just impressed me. No, no, you got to go to their house. And have you ever kind of 
argued with the Lord or <laughs> sort of tried to reason. It's like, well, wait, it's dark. I'm already past his house. Why would I go back there? The Lord's like, no, no, turn around. So I did. And there was Teddy out on the porch, Martha's mom, and she needed prayer uh, because Phil and Martha were in the hospital with baby Abraham. And um, so it was, it was clearly a divine appointment. And then I got to pray with them as they were in the hospital too. Abraham was on oxygen at the time. But God will give us divine appointments, right? And uh, if you work somewhere where people come into your office, <laughs> your divine appointments come to you. That's even better. They're not just appointments, they're divine appointments. And we should look at all of them that way. I think of Clayton Leineweber, my friend from California. I was driving from California to Virginia and I decided I'd try to do it all in one day. Not, not really a very good idea. So about two o'clock in the morning, I'm falling asleep. I, I don't know how I didn't kill myself, but I started going off the road and, and somehow caught myself. Clayton called me in the morning and said, Pastor Rob, did anything happen to you at two o'clock in the morning? And at first, since I didn't kill myself, I didn't really remember exactly. So I said, oh, oh, I said, yes, yes. That's when I went off the road and almost, I, you know, I could have ate it, as they say. Clayton said, you know, God woke me up at two o'clock in the morning and said, you must pray for Pastor Rob. God will give you divine appointments, amen? And I'm sure you all have your own stories of how God has blessed and given you divine appointments where you were able to be a blessing to others. Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Verse five and onward. Then he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, or Shechem, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. What is the sixth hour? Anybody know? Noon, right? Yeah, high noon. Why would you be in the desert going to get water at high noon? Well, she probably wasn't too thrilled to see the other Samaritans. Remember, as we go through the story, she's had five failed marriages. No wonder she's now living. I'm not I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, <laughs> but no wonder she's now living with the sixth and won't get married. Commitment is probably pretty hard after her heart has been broken five times. Because remember, who did the divorcing in this time? Not women. No, they didn't have any rights. Men did the divorcing. So highly likely, five men had divorced her and they could divorce for any reason. Women, burn the toast, that's it, right? That's the way it was in the day. Can you imagine her heart? Can you imagine how she felt in her heart? Uh, let's go on. Here she is at noon in the hot heat with an empty bucket and an empty heart. Rather than brave the angry stares, she'd rather brave the heat of the day. And then Jesus does it. 
verse 7. There comes a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said unto her, give me to drink. What? She's thinking. Give me to drink? Let me go on. The disciples were gone to get food in the city. Then the woman of Samaria said unto him, How? How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me? For I am a woman of Samaria. For the Samaritans and the Jews have no dealings one with another. Jesus, by saying, give me a drink, he could have instead tried to do a favor for her, which he probably would have said no to. But instead, he asked for a favor. He said, give me a drink. And what he was doing is he was showing trust. No wonder she was shocked. Her own people had written her off. And now here's a Jew that was showing trust in her. Who is this man? If he only knew who I was, he wouldn't trust me this far. Well, look at what Jesus responds. Jesus responds, if you only knew me. She says, if you only knew me in her heart, I think she's saying, he says, if you only knew me. Look on to verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me drink or give me to drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. If you only knew me, Jesus says, out of the great depths of unfathomable love, God so loved the world that he gave his son. This stream gushing out from the heart of God is as broad as the world and as deep as human need for time and eternity. If you only knew the measure of the gift that I am offering. You know, people in life, we people in church, and other people in life go after all kinds of different streams to try to satisfy ourselves. Been there? Yeah, you've been there. So have I. Hopefully you're not still there. But here's some of them. Love, success, wealth, fame, but a few of the countless springs at which men have stopped and stooped to drink. But imagine this. You've got a handful of stickers and they read, will thirst again. And you're just popping those babies everywhere. You go to the bar, will thirst again. You go to this executive that's made it to the top and on his desk, you put one of the stickers, will thirst again. You will thirst again unless you make Christ your all. Amen? He is the living water. Think of Samson. Tried and tried, saw a woman in Timna, took a Gaza Strip harlot, then Delilah, and he died a thirsty man. Solomon had it all, right? I mean, I mean, he had like beyond all. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, when you talk about wealth, you're not going to be able to get as wealthy as Solomon. 
And he, read the book of Ecclesiastes, he wasn't full of living water. He was thirsty. Oh, we must make Christ our all in all. No church is good enough to be on a level with Jesus. Come on, say amen. No denominational distinctiveness, and I'm not doubting those things, but Christ has got to be at the center of all of it. No cause, no creed, no baptism, no party, no ministry, no customs, no rules, no movement, no teacher, no pastor, no vision, no specialty, no aspect, whatever it is, however good it may be, can be on a par with the firstness of Jesus in our lives. As Pascal said, in every heart, there is this God-shaped vacuum. So God has put that there. God has put that thirst in our hearts, right? But he's the only one that can fill it. Oh, that we would understand, illustrate with a little strange plant from South Africa, finds a little moist spot and then rests there and puts its roots down for a while, becoming green until the earth dries up. Then it just sort of rolls over in the wind to the next moist spot. So it just goes from one water hole to another, you could say. But after its journeyings, it's nothing but a bundle of dead roots and leaves. The life of this plant tells the story of those who drink only at this world's springs. They go from spring to spring, and at last, at the end of the longest life, they're nothing but bundles of unsatisfied desires and burning thirst. Poem says this, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, oh, the waters failed. Even as I stopped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Now none but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. Jeremiah said that the Israelites had done two evils. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. This has to do with water. Anybody remember this? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, Jesus said, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns for themselves. Oh, deliver us, oh God, from our own broken cisterns, and deliver us to Christ our Lord. Uh, moving on now, verses 11 through 15. The woman said unto him, Sir, you don't have anything to draw with, and the well is deep. From where will you get this living water? Now, please don't misunderstand this. She knows very well there's no living water down there in that well. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Remember, she's coming from a very legalistic society. You've got to work. You've got to work. You've got to work to be saved. There is work in salvation, by the way. It's the work of faith. But the gift of God is salvation in Christ Jesus. Jesus answered, verse 13, 
and said unto her, Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. This world has nothing to offer, friends. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him or her shall never thirst. Uk me in the Greek, which is a double negative. Never ever thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. The woman said, well, I want that. Give me that water that I thirst not, neither have to come here to draw. Oh, she dreaded that place. Oh, she could hide in her little village, in her home, but when she came to the well, she would often see people that she didn't want to see. So please, free me of this, Lord, I pray, she says. And then Jesus says something that seems a bit odd. I mean, we're talking, we have, we're having this living water thing. He's trying to help her understand living water. And then he says, verse 16, go call your husband and come here. So you're not getting away from coming here. You still have to come back here. God wants to take us to places where he can go deep in our lives. And sometimes we have to go back there before he can take us on to the next part of our journey. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, you have said well that I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that you said truly, and he's starting to break through. Her heart is hardened because of all her disappointment and all her grief, these men who have messed her up, but he's starting to break through. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay, so here's my take on this. It's a little different. I don't put her as a prostitute. And here is why. Well, I kind of already told you why. Because of the cultural clues of the day, likely she was divorced by a man five different times. Now, commentators make these comments, which I don't disagree with and I want to share with you. So you have this sort of the other side. First, this, which is definitely true, those heart-searching words, go call your husband, appear to have pierced her conscience like an arrow. From that moment, however ignorant, she speaks like an earnest, sincere inquire after truth. But the real reason may not be so evident. I'll get to that in a moment. But first, what would a commentator say? Till men and women are brought to feel their sinfulness and need, no real good is ever done to their souls. I say amen to that. We must see ourselves as we really are. The problem with Laodicea is they know not. We must know in order to buy the gold tried in the fire and the white raiment and the eye salve, as it says in the message to Laodicea. Till a sinner sees himself as God sees him, he, can, he will continue to be careless and unmoved. By all means, we must labor to convince the unconverted man of sin to prick his conscience, to open his eyes, to show him himself himself. 
Never does a soul value the gospel medicine until it feels its disease. Amen to all of that. I absolutely believe all of that is true. Never does a man see any beauty in Christ as a savior until he discovers that he is himself a lost and ruined sinner. Amen, amen, amen. We must see ourselves and then God will show us our needs. These thoughts are absolutely true, but in this situation, in this narrative, I'm going to give you a little different perspective. I think for the first time in her life, she began to see herself differently. The goodness of God was leading her to repentance. Her heart was bitter because of the disappointing past, but the sweet drops of water of life were wearing down her resistance. Oh, she didn't want to commit to any one, anything. And he was calling for commitment in a big way. She was beginning to realize that her hopeless past could be traded for a hope-filled future. She was awakened to the futility of all earthly relationships in light of the heavenly relationship of Christ. That must come first. All other relationships are cemented around that. He says, in essence, I know all about you. I know that you've been divorced five times and that you're living with a man currently. But let me tell you something. All this rejection in your life that is causing you to run and hide from your local village doesn't phase me a bit. I will not reject you. In fact, I'm looking for people like you to worship me, he says, in spirit and in truth. All this transient relational failure that you have experienced, I want to replace with everlasting, meaningful, spiritual, relational success. I am showing you the path of life. In my presence is fullness of joy. And at my right hand are pleasures evermore. All this disappointment, all these pent up feelings of guilt and shame, don't act like you don't have them because we all do, can be buried in the depths of the sea and replaced with the peace and assurance that flows from the righteousness of Christ. After all, ma'am, I was rejected, and I will be rejected on your behalf. Those who should have taken care of me, Jesus could say, will also let me down. I have taken your shame and your guilt and will take these things to the cross, to the grave, and to the resurrection that you may be saved. Won't you let me, please, won't you let me fill you with this living water? And the Samaritan woman begins to let her guard down a little more. She's nearly willing to accept Christ as Messiah, 
as Savior. Oh, then in verse 20 through 24, they go through this thing about the mountains. Well, which mountain do we worship on? Again, she sometimes changes the subject. Do we ever do that when conviction comes home? We'd rather change the subject than change our lives sometimes. But it wasn't about mountains at all. I'll, re I'll read the verses to you. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. You say Jerusalem is the place that we ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you do not know what. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. Wow. The Samaritan woman thinks, God is seeking after me? Me? With all my horrible past? And God says, yes. Yes. Let your guard down. Let me in. Let me be everything to you in your life. Well, in closing, Jesus declares himself as the I am. The woman said, Sir, I know that when Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, I who speak to you am, or I am the I am, the always existent, all powerful, all loving, all-knowing, holy one. The Samaritan woman is a fitting representation of us, all of us. If you feel unworthy of Jesus today, know that you're in good company. For we all were despised Samaritans in our lost, sinful state in Adam. Jesus says to you and I today, if you're depressed because of your circumstances, I am the hope for today and the surety for your future. If you are burdened with a heavy load of guilt and shame, I am the sin bearer. If you struggle with pride, I am the meek and lowly one. If you are living in fear today and worrying about what the future holds, Jesus says, I am. I am your Savior. Be of good courage. I will hold your hand. If you are empty today or just not full, if you're tired of feeling never satisfied, if you are thirsty for more of God, if you are wanting Him to go deep in your life, to rid you of every vestige of sin and self, Jesus says, I am the living water. And the Spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts say, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Jesus' promise is that when you have him, you have everything. Amen? 
when you taste his goodness, when you make him your great shepherd, you shall not want. You will have everything that you need and you will lack nothing. Won't you let him fill you today?